back in Romans 7 this morning. If you'll turn there with me. We're in the middle of Paul's third major section in the book of Romans, dealing with the sanctification of the believer. The first two sections dealt with how sinners are justified, how sinners are declared to be righteous before a holy God. But as we came to chapter 6, Paul started to talk about how a person who has believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has been justified before God, how is that person to live now as a child of God? Starting in chapter 6, we entered into this what now portion of Paul's letter. Now that we are saved, what now? This section started at the beginning of that chapter and will carry us through chapter 8. And we noted in our last study that what he has to say in chapter 6 and 7 are very closely tied together. In chapter 6, we dealt with the believer's relationship to sin. The early chapters of the letter dealt with the sinful condition of people. But as those who have been justified, saved out of that sinful state, what now? What is our relationship to sin now? He asked two questions, and both questions had the same answer. Are we to continue living a life of sin? May it never be. Is it all right for us to sin, even occasionally, now that we are under grace? May it never be. Sin is not okay as a pattern for our life, and it's not okay as a daily indulgence. In short, sin is not okay, period. He explained why that is by telling us that we have died with Christ. And as those who have died with Christ, we have died to sin, to its power, to its penalty, to really everything that gave it authority in our lives. We are no longer to, pre to go on presenting ourselves to it as slaves which we did before, which the unbelieving world still does because they are enslaved to their sinful condition. But we are to present our bodies, really all that we are, to God as slaves of righteousness, slaves of obedience, slaves of God. We saw all of that in chapter 6, and Paul presented a key pivotal verse for this in verse 14 of chapter 6. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. It was that first statement that launched us into the last half of the chapter, where Paul talked about our slavery to righteousness, not slavery to sin, no longer slaves to sin. But the second half of that statement in verse 14 wasn't dealt with until we got to chapter 7, the first half of which we looked at in our last study. What is the believer's relationship to the law? Sin is not master over us, and we are no longer under the law. Now, the reason that we are no longer under the law is very much the same reason that we are no longer under sin. We have died to it, to sin and to the law. In the first verses, he gave us an analogy, an illustration of a husband who dies and his wife is no longer under the authority of her husband. It was an illustration showing that with death, there comes separation from authority. When we were lost in our sins, we were enslaved to sin. It had authority over us, and that relationship had only one outcome, death. Well, the law also had authority over a person. Now, the law didn't have authority over every person. He referred in verse 1 of chapter 7 that he is now speaking to those who knew law, who had an understanding of law. Those who were under the Mosaic law were the Jews. Gentiles as a whole were never under the Mosaic law. 
But as was very common in the early church, believing Jews, or at least Jews who claimed to believe, would often come into the churches and make claims that elements of the law were still necessary to be upheld. When Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, between the first and second missionary journeys, this became an issue with the early church. Antioch, by and large, was a Gentile church, but then up from Jerusalem came some men from the church there. They were Jews who had believed who came preaching circumcision. circumcision. You can read in Acts 15 about the events there, with the Jerusalem council, where it was determined that they should not be burdened with trying to keep the law. But Paul dealt with this issue several times, and we've seen in the book of Romans that there was evidently a strong Jewish presence or influence in this Gentile church at Rome as well. And he's brought up the issue of the law several times. So now here in chapter 7, he does it again, showing that even when it comes to the law, the believer has been set free. He has died to the law. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. The law was specifically given to Israel. It was never given to the Gentiles. We'll see that when we look at the initial verses when we get to chapter 9. But whether a person is Jew or Gentile doesn't matter when it comes to the law. The believer has died to the law. We now serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter, he said in verse 6. The letter being a reference to the Mosaic law. Remember, no matter who you were, the law never could save. It was never a means of salvation for Jew or Gentile, for anyone. It was a set of ordinances that God gave to the house of Jacob, the people of Israel, that they should live by to govern their lives, and also to show them that they could not live a righteous life. Paul made clear in verses 7 to 12 of this chapter that the law revealed sin. He gave the example of coveting, a sin that is for the most part internal, in that a person can covet and it doesn't really have to express itself outwardly. You can't, you can't always look at a person and say, oh, that guy's coveting something right now. No, you would never know that. It might reveal itself in what that person does or what that person says, but for the most part, it's an internal thing. But you know when you do it. And I know when I do it. So with coveting, what did the law do? Well, it did two things. First of all, it showed beyond a doubt in black and white that coveting was sin. With God saying, you shall not covet, now everyone knows I shouldn't covet. If I do, then I am in sin. But also what it did was provoke the sin nature within me to want to covet. Someone says, don't do that. I forbid you to do that. What do we want to do? We want to do that, whatever it is that is. That's what sin did. A person wanted to sin more. We saw that at the end of chapter 5, verse 20, where it talked about the law coming in and the transgression increasing. Sin increased. There was more sin spurred on by being told not to do things, as well as an inexcusable guilt that came from sinning knowingly. So the law wasn't sinful, but it provoked the sin nature to want to sin more. And that's what Paul covered from verses 7 through 12 of chapter 7. Now, we have died to sin. 
and for those under the law died to the law as well the believer is no longer tied to their authority but there's a question that comes up if we are no longer under sin and we no longer are, are, are under the law neither one has any authority over us why do I still sin I'm a believer I'm not enslaved to these things any longer why do I still sometimes have a struggle with sin in my life if I'm supposed to be free of it this is another example of the building blocks that we're seeing in the book of Romans Paul continuing with the life of the believer but revealing it a bit at a time what we saw in chapter 6 was our relationship positional relationship that we have with Christ we have died with him we've been buried with him raised to new life with him all part of that baptism of the Holy Spirit identified us with Christ and because of that that affects the way that we live we are to live in light of that truth but you may or not have noticed this about yourself when you got saved you weren't any different from a physical standpoint last time I gave you an example of a person who goes home from work on a Friday gets saved over the weekend goes back to work on Monday what's changed for him he has the same job the same family the same mortgage the same bills to pay the same co-workers and neighbors and and all of that is all the same from a physical bodily standpoint his situation hasn't changed now he has changed he has been made alive spiritually alive with Christ he has been declared righteous he has been made new in heart but he has not been instantaneously taken up to glory where all of his problems all of his temptations all of his earthly situations are no longer part of his life they're still there there is still a future aspect of his salvation that he is waiting for that he is anxiously longing for look back at chapter 5 just a minute we saw this back in the early verses of chapter 5 talking about those who have been justified through faith in Christ he said in verse 1 of chapter 5 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ remember that's peace in the sense that we are now on God's side we are no longer in animosity with him which we were which we were before we were saved we were his enemies but now we have peace with him through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God the last phrase right there in verse 2 this is the hope that we have looking forward to when we will one day be glorified along with Jesus Christ when this body of sin that we now live in along with its corruption and sicknesses will one day all be gone as our bodies like our hearts have been changed will be changed and made new that is yet future that is what we are looking forward to someday but what about now well he says in verse 3 and not only this 
but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We exult in the hope of what's to come, but now we have tribulations. We go through trials and tribulations here in this life. Now, physical situation hasn't changed for us. But the key difference, and this will come out as we get into chapter 8, but the key difference is that now that we are saved, the Holy Spirit was given to us. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is vital in the life that we now live as believers in Jesus Christ. Because it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be able to live lives of righteousness in slavery to righteousness. Now he alluded to this here in chapter 5. And as I mentioned, he'll talk more about it when we get into chapter 8. But here in the middle of chapter 7, we haven't reached that next building block just yet. In the middle of chapter 7, Paul is going to show the general situation that plagues believers as he talks about the difficulty that we sometimes have with sin in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we still sin, and sometimes it seems as though that slavery is still there. Why is that? How can that be? That's what he's going to present from verse 13 on to the end of the chapter. Now, if you're familiar with this portion of Scripture, you're probably aware that there are two major views on what Paul is saying here. And I've already tipped my hand as to what view I take on this. But the views have to do with whom Paul is referring to here. He takes a position in this section on of, of his own struggle with sin, uses himself as the example. And the question is, is he talking about his current struggle as a believer? Or is he talking about the struggle that he had as an unbeliever? Is Paul talking about a saved or unsaved person when he talks about this struggle with sin. And I'll just say both views have certain strengths, they have things in their favor, and they both have certain weaknesses or problem areas. I believe that Paul is talking about a believer's struggle with sin. And the reason why I think that is because I believe that view fits the pattern of Paul's letter overall better, as well as some of the things that he has detailed so far in the letter. And as we go through this, I'll bring some of those things out. Now, I don't want to speak for those who hold to the other view, but I do know that some of the problem areas, which I believe are valid concerns, have to do with a couple of different areas, because they are some areas with which I've struggled as I've studied through this. First area is that the language used throughout indicates that this person is still in bondage which Paul has just finished saying, we've been freed from. In verse 14, he says, I am sold into bondage to sin. In verse 17, sin indwells me. In verse 21, evil is present in me. Verse 23, a prisoner of the law of sin. And then he asks the question in verse 24, who will set me free from the body of this death? Those statements alone can be somewhat difficult to reconcile with what he said in chapter 6, as well as the first part of chapter 7, that we have died with Christ 
and are free from sin and the law. The second area that comes up as a problem area is that Paul continues on with his language of having a relationship to the law. And therefore, it brings up the question of how could a person whom he has just said is freed from the law, Jew and Gentile alike, how could that person be worried about his relationship to the law? Verse 14, he says the law is spiritual. Verse 16, he says, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 22, he says, joyfully concur with the law of God. Verse 25 says, with my mind, I am serving the law of God. So he's still making references to the law, even though he has just said that we have died to the law. So with those two things, at least in my mind, and I'm not claiming that's a complete list of the differences, but those are a couple of areas that have given me pause in this section. However, as I said before, even in light of those difficulties, I believe that there is a stronger case to be made for Paul to be talking about a believer here, and that those difficulties can be overcome, and we'll see why as we go through here. Okay, so last time we left off with verse 12. So look with me now at verse 13 of Romans chapter 7. He says, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? So here he's still talking about the law and its purpose and relationship to his life. In verse 12, he had just come to the conclusion that even though the law stirred up sin, woke it up, made it alive, it wasn't the law that was evil. He said in verse 12, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. There was nothing wrong or wicked or evil about the law. It was righteous and good. It was perfect as given by God. What wasn't perfect was the human response to it. But this raises another question, which we have here in verse 13. Did that which is good become a cause of my death? Did it bring about my death? And what's Paul's answer? Well, you can probably guess what it is by now. May it never be. There's our phrase again, may genointo. Ah, absolutely not. It wasn't the law that caused me to die. What did? Rather, it was sin. Sin caused me to die. The wages of sin is what? Death. Sin entered the world. Death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We saw that back in chapter 5. Death is a result of sin, not a result of the law. And he goes on, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. So Paul gives two purposes here, and they build or progress upon one another. First, the law exposed sin, showed it as sin, because it was written down and exposed it. Anyone who is familiar with the law could see what sin was and knew that it was wrong. It was the good standard, the righteous standard of God, and it revealed things to be sin. Remember our yardstick analogy that we've used from time to time in our study. You're holding on to a whole bunch of short little strings in one hand. Six inches, one foot, two feet, all of these strings of various lengths. And you have 
them right next to a yardstick that you're holding in another hand, three feet long, exactly three feet long. What are you able to see without a shadow of a doubt? Those strings don't match up to that yardstick. They aren't a yard. I know that coveting is wrong. The good standard of God told me, thou shall not covet. So, beyond a doubt, coveting is sin. My guilt that resulted in my condemnation and death was clearly revealed. But also, it goes further here as well. It progresses beyond that. He says, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Not only does it show that something doesn't measure up, but it shows it to be completely inadequate. It is not and never will be righteous. And another way to look at this is if you have something that's white, say you have a white shirt, you, and you look at that shirt and you think, that's a pretty bright shade of white. I think that's pretty clean. So you put on that shirt and you go out in it. And then you meet up with someone else who has a white shirt. But their shirt is perfectly white. And I know that that concept doesn't exist, but their shirt is whiter and cleaner than yours is. Now what happens? Now you look at your shirt and what do you see? My shirt's dirty. It looks filthy compared to his or her shirt. Now, as I'm walking around in it, what am I walking around in? Not, not a bright white shirt. Now I'm walking around in a filthy shirt. Now it's embarrassing to be walking around in this shirt because it, it to me now is so yellow and dirty. It's been revealed. What do we now know? It's not perfect. It doesn't measure up. It's gone from clean to utterly dirty all of a sudden because now we know that it's not clean. Sin, the law showed it to be sin and that makes it utterly sinful, completely sinful. Now, my action in that area isn't just not good enough, but it's evil, it's vile, it's wicked, because it's been compared to righteousness, to perfection. I know that now. I know that it is a cause of my death because it's been exposed as sin, which only leads to death. So his point here in verse 13 the law is that perfectly white shirt that the other guy was wearing. It shows that there's no comparison. It was good, and in its goodness, its righteousness, it revealed that my life was no good. It was sinful. It's my filthy shirt. Okay, so now we come to verse 14. Now Paul is going to talk about this conflict that we have, the conflict between what is good and what is evil between that which is spiritual and that which is of flesh. Now, I want you to note something here, which ties in with the discussion from earlier about whether he's talking about his life before he was saved or after he was saved. Look at some of the phrases here in this section. Verse 14, he says, I am of flesh. Verse 15, what I am doing, I am not practicing, I am doing. You see, on down through this section, he's speaking in the present tense. This is what I am doing. What was he doing in the previous section when talking about his relationship to the law? Verse 7, he said, I would not have come to know. Verse 8, 
produced in me. Verse 9, I was alive, sin became alive, I died. In the last section, when he was talking about his relationship to the law, before he was saved, before he died to it, it was all in the past tense. That was then. This is now. So here, now, he moves into the present tense. And that again is an indicator that he's now talking about what is true now, what is true in the life of the believer. I know that those who say that he's talking about an unbeliever here say that he's just using a, a figure of speech or a literary device to put himself back in that situation, to speak as if he's back in that old condition of unbelief. But the question remains, why didn't he do that in the last section as well? Why change the tense now when in the previous section he was talking about what was true in the past as well? Now, I'm not going to say that that in and of itself is enough to make the argument, but again, I think that's just another indicator that the flow of his discussion is much better suited to realize that he's now talking about his life after he's been justified. He's talking about the life of the believer, not the unbeliever here. He's moving on in the present tense to talk about his life now. Okay, so what does he say here? Look with me at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. So here he's making a distinction. He's broadening the chasm of what we've been seeing between the law, which was good, holy, and righteous, and what? The source of sin, me, the sinner. Where does my sin come from? It comes from me. It comes from within me. Throughout this section, he's personifying sin. He's giving it characteristics and actions. But you realize sin isn't a thing. It's not something you can hold on to, touch, see. What is it? It's the unrighteous actions and attitudes of people. So on the one hand, you have the law, which is good. Here he says spiritual, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the law wasn't just good, it was perfect. But the law, but, but the people who were tasked with keeping it were not. And why weren't they? because they were sinners. They were of flesh. We talked about that phrase in our last study when we were in verse 5, while we were in the flesh. That's not a phrase that simply means we were in real bodies of flesh. No, because we still are in bodies of flesh. But it was a phrase meant to signify the control that the flesh had over us, the authority that it had as the descendants of Adam. That authority from Adam has been broken. We saw that back in chapter 5, that entire discussion on the differences between the two one mans, Adam and Christ. In Adam, we had condemnation. Through Christ, there is justification. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 5 said, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Through Christ, those who belong to him, there is freedom from that bondage to sin that came through Adam. 
and there is now righteousness. The ability to live a righteous life that we saw as we went through chapter 6 comes through our baptism into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that now we live with him. That is our spiritual baptism that we talked about. There is that entire concept of being taken from the realm of Adam, which is that realm of being in the flesh, and now we live in the realm of spiritual life in Christ. So here in verse 14, we see that comparison. The law was something that was spiritual, but we are of flesh. So how could one ever respond to the law? Now, I said earlier, this was one of those make or break verses, because Paul here says, I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. But Matt, we just said that we are free from that. We are no longer in the flesh, but of the spirit now. So what gives? I'll tell you what gives, or at least how I see it giving here. Paul here is giving a general explanation for how this works. The contrast between the two realms or worlds being of the spirit and being of the flesh. There is a sense that I am in flesh right now. I can grab my arm. I can pinch my skin. I am in a fleshly body. We talked earlier about being saved. What changes? Not my flesh. That doesn't change. If I get saved and I'm 50 pounds overweight and I have some debilitating disease, then guess what I am after I get up off my knees having put my faith in Christ for my salvation? I'm still 50 pounds overweight. I still have that debilitating disease. That hasn't changed. This flesh in which I live still has all the corruption in it that it had before. That part of my flesh is still there. It still isn't perfect. But what has changed? I am now spiritually alive. He said, first off, what? The law is spiritual. What was the law? It was the word of God. It was part of that which God communicated to man, in this case, given to the nation of Israel. It was spiritually, divinely given to man. Some passages to note on this. We won't turn to these. But he says in Matthew 22, verse 43, He said to them, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying? And in the very next verse, he quotes from Psalm 110. But note what he says about David here. David in the Spirit said that, called him Lord. What David wrote was not from David. It was from the Holy Spirit speaking through David. In Acts chapter 1, Peter tells the rest of the apostles, one, Acts chapter 116, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Again, the same thing. The Holy Spirit foretold of Judas by the mouth of David. What David wrote wasn't of David. It was of God by the Holy Spirit. Another passage in Acts uh, chapter 28, verse 25, where Paul is a prisoner in Rome, and he's talking to the Jews there. And he says there, And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. We had David before, 
Now we see the same with Isaiah. It was the Holy Spirit who spoke to them through Isaiah. Not Isaiah's words, but the words of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to one passage. Over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter is talking about how the eyewitness accounts of his and the other apostles were right in line with what had been written by the prophets. They could see the word of God in what the prophets wrote played out in front of them when Christ was with them. But look down at verse 20 of 2 Peter chapter 1. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. All those things written and spoken by the prophets, the writings, the law, all of it, men moved by the Holy Spirit. It was all God-breathed. So back in Romans chapter 7, when Paul says, the law was spiritual, it was breathed by God, it was given by God, perfect and complete. But the problem with it was what? I am the problem. The law was given to those of the flesh, those not spiritually alive. Now again, keep in mind here, building blocks. As a believer, I am spiritually alive, and I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and through him I have been made spiritually alive. But just me, on my own, without the Spirit, I am no different than anyone else. And I believe that's Paul's contrast here. You have the law, which was spiritual, and people who are of flesh. Now again, earlier in verse 5, he said what? We were in the flesh. That was more than just being flesh and blood. It was under the authority of the flesh, still in Adam. Now, as believers, we are no longer in Adam, but we are still of flesh still fleshly, because we still are walking around in these bodies of flesh. Bodies that have the tendencies of sin and the corruption that was brought about by sin that still have that sinful nature to them. So at the end of the verse, when he says, sold into bondage to sin, he's talking about our flesh there as well. Our flesh still has that association to sin, that nature, that corruption. I am human, and I still have that fallen human nature of humanity that exists in my flesh, that makes my flesh weak. There is a weakness there. If you skip ahead just a bit, look at where he's going to go on to say in verse 3 of chapter 8. He says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law, being perfect and holy, wasn't able to be kept. Why? Because of the weakness of the flesh. There was no spiritual enablement provided to be able to keep it. So God sent his son and made a provision to take care of that, the details of which We'll talk about when we get to chapter 8. But what he's saying here in verse 14 of chapter 7 is that this is that initial conflict. On the one hand, we have the spiritual law. On the other, we have the corruption of the flesh. And now, as a believer, one who is no longer under the power of sin, 
one who was no longer under the authority of it, I now have been instructed to live my life as a slave of righteousness. So the question is, if I'm still in my physical body and that hasn't changed, how can I do that? And that's what the conflict is here that Paul is about to present with this chasm in mind. How is it possible to do that? So in the next verses, he brings that out. I am in this fallen body. I have not yet been made perfect in my physical body. That won't happen until I'm in glory. So I still experience sinful thoughts. I still have tendencies, habits that creep up from time to time. You know, there are people who claim that many of the sinful things that people engage in are, are physical, that they have genetic reasons or explanations, addictions, desires, things like that. I don't know if that's true or not. But even if it is, I'd say that that is not in conflict with what we're seeing here, but actually would go right along with it. The flesh is corrupt. There are things about our flesh that have been corrupted by sin, and we need to overcome those things. That's why Paul said in the last chapter, Romans 6, 12 through 13, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You are free from sin. It doesn't mean that those lusts are no longer there, but it means that we are not to obey them any longer. We are to make our bodies do what? Serve God, present them as instruments of righteousness. That is using these corrupted fleshly tools that we live in to serve God, to live obediently to him. We've been given a new heart. We've been raised up with Christ. And now our charge is to bring our bodies along for that ride until the day that we are glorified and God removes even that corruption and the very presence of sin from our mortal bodies. If there was no struggle, if we had been made new in every way, then the commands that Paul gave us in chapter 6 would be unnecessary. If our desires now as believers were for righteousness, were to obey God, and there were no tendencies or struggles for or lusts for anything sinful, then why would a believer ever sin again? I don't think that we would. That's going to be our state in glory. But clearly, there are situations where we still fail where we still need to confess sins, where we still understand that we need to improve and put sin away from us. And it's that struggle that Paul is presenting here. Now, take a look with me at verse 15, and we'll see Paul go through this process, this conflict that the believer now has. Verse 15, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. So now he's talking about actions that he does. Now there are things that he's doing that he doesn't understand. The word for understand could also mean approve of, either, either of which really makes sense here. I think the idea is that he's in, he's in a quandary. Why do I do these things? Now, I don't think that we need to take Paul's account here and turn it into an everyday, all the time, constant struggle with sin that he's having. 
that's again what some commentaries uh, some commentators I read would say was a reason why this shows him to be an unbeliever that he's that he's talking about his life as an unbeliever because a person that has a constant propensity to continually sin all day every day is indicative of an unbeliever not a true believer and I would agree with that I think that a person who is in a constant state of sin never does anything good never chooses righteousness over unrighteousness or at least that's their general pattern that person needs to examine their life as that would be an indication that they never believed in the first place but I don't think that's necessarily the picture of that Paul's presenting here he's simply talking about those times when he does sin those times when it does seem like a struggle I mean that's the point that he's trying to make why do we sometimes struggle with sin in those times which I think we'd all admit come up on occasion why do we do that what is it about that sin that seems to take charge in those instances why do I submit to sin instead of to righteousness what I am doing I do not understand for I am not I am not practicing what I would like to do but I am doing the very thing I hate there is a clear conflict here there is what he wants to do what he knows is right to do but then he does the exact opposite of that keep in mind he's showing that he has a change in life change in heart with this statement now again when we look at the other side the argument of the unbeliever I think Paul has made it clear that this type of conflict doesn't really happen on that other side sure when we were lost we had a conscience and our conscience told us what was right and wrong but early on in the letter in those initial chapters of Romans Paul made it pretty clear in his description of our fallen state that doing those things is exactly where we wanted to be we suppressed the truth and unrighteousness we became futile in our speculations our foolish heart was darkened we'd look at Ephesians chapter 2 several times in our study where Paul told us that we lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind that's where we lived and it's where we wanted to live so for Paul to present that now as a conflict in a life of an unbeliever the unbeliever doing those things that he hates hating doing those things I I don't believe that fits what Paul has already said no this is a person who has had their mind changed transformed by the Holy Spirit but the flesh still has those tendencies still has a propensity to crave that sin something that it used to indulge in regularly something that it knows and understands and quite frankly it felt good to indulge in it there is that remembrance of it even though now the believer has a different mind has had their heart changed about those things he says I am doing the very thing that I hate this is a very telling statement here the believer does what hates sin we hate it this is a key difference between a believer and an unbeliever the unbeliever sins and there is a desire for more it whets the appetite but a believer when a believer sins there is regret there is remorse which leads to confession of sin as a believer in Jesus Christ 
I now have a new mind towards sin. I don't want to do it. But sometimes that sin takes hold because I let it take hold. And that leads to the condition that Paul is talking about here. I don't always understand why it is that I do it, but I find myself doing it. Look at verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now he brings his previous topic of the law back into it. Because remember, the law was good. There wasn't anything wrong with the law. But he's doing wrong things. He's sinning. But in his mind, he's now in agreement with what the law had always told him. He understands that what the law said was right, but yet he's still going against it. This doesn't indicate that we are still under the law. That's, an, that's another reason why some want to say that this is an unbeliever. Believers have died to the law, so Paul must be referring back to this time before he was saved, when he was under the law. There's some truth there, but I don't think that's what he's saying. This is a continuation from his thought process from verse 14. The law is spiritual. It's divine. I now agree with what is divine, that which is from God. That's what I want to do. But when I sin, I am now doing what I don't want to do. How frustrating is that? I did it again. Why did I do it again? Why do I keep letting sin win? When we were in chapter 6, I mentioned going back and letting an old boss tell you what to do. Switching jobs, working for someone new now. But your old boss calls you up and asks you for something. And you do what it is that they want you to do. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But that's what giving into sin is like for us now. Obeying that old master. The master from which we've died, been separated from. And yet, when he calls, we find ourselves doing what he asks. It's what we're used to. It's the way we always used to do it. It's doing it for old time's sake. We know we work for a different boss now. We know he expects different things from us. And yet, we keep responding to the texts that we get from our old boss. And that's just a picture of what is going on here. He goes on in verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now here we see Paul start to personify sin, which I mentioned earlier. It's, it's like he's saying, I'm not doing it, sin is doing it. Now, this isn't Paul trying to shirk his responsibility or saying that he isn't really at fault, but he's presenting the picture in terms that will help us understand. You have me who has been justified, set apart, died with Christ. As a believer, that's who I am. That now identifies me. But I also still have this body that hasn't yet been changed, that is still influenced, corrupted by sin. So that's what he means when he says, sin which dwells in me, it's still there in my body. That's where the conflict resides. As an unbeliever, that conflict doesn't exist. What do you have? You have the sinful fleshly body and the sinful mind as well. The whole package is sinful. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. I, I mentioned something from Ephesians 2 earlier, but I want you to see this. 
Remember what Paul said in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. He's describing the unbeliever here. He says in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, look at verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This was who we were. The sinful desires that we had were not only in our flesh, but also in our mind. It was the complete package of sin. But now, in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, My mind, what I want to do, is in conflict with the sin in my flesh. So, I am not doing it. Not, not the Paul who died with Christ, who was raised to new life. But it was that remnant that still exists in my flesh, that desired it, craved it, in that portion of me that has not yet been completed in the salvation process. Now, does that excuse my sin? Does that make my sin okay? Not at all. Why? Because I am free from its power and its authority. I am responsible for making my body do what is right. Making my body be an instrument that serves God, serves righteousness. Even though that temptation or that desire might still be there, my body doesn't do anything that I don't tell it to do or give it occasion to do. Do certain images give me impure thoughts that I struggle with? Then don't look at those images. Don't even put yourself in a position where they're available to you. Does walking into a bar give me the temptation to fall back into old habits when I used to drink myself into a stupor? Then don't go anywhere near a bar. When Jenny and I lived in Kansas City, we used to drive to church from our dingy little apartment through a section of town that had beautiful multi-million dollar houses. And we ended up having to take a different way to church each morning because we were coveting and envying the first thing on our minds Sunday morning. We would drive through this neighborhood and just think, boy, we wish we had these houses. The point is, don't give those things any traction, any occasion. If they're a problem for you, then keep them away from you. Some of those desires of the flesh still dwell there, so don't feed it. That's what he says in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In me, in the flesh part of me, there is nothing good. This body is sinful and corrupt. It is. Still tainted by sin. Still corrupted by sin. How do I know? Do I get sick? Does this body age? Will this body eventually die? We talked about that several weeks ago, back when we were in chapter 5. Death is not a natural part of who we are. Death is a consequence of sin coming into the world, and death came through sin. Through my faith in the gospel, I now have eternal life. But guess what? Unless the Lord comes first, I am still going to physically die. This body of mine will still bear that aspect 
of the corruption of sin. I will never die spiritually again. I am now spiritually alive. And when this body dies, my spirit will instantly be in the presence of the Lord. But right now, I must continue to function and dwell in this body that has been tainted by sin. And that is what produces this conflict that we're seeing here in Romans chapter 7. He says at the end of the verse, For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Once again, it's what he wants to do contrasted with what happens. I want to do good, but I don't. And again, I think we need to be careful here. We can't take this that Paul says here in this phrase and say, Paul is saying that we never do anything good. Or it's okay if we're continually in sin because Paul says that's just the way that it is. No, that's not the point. That's not what he's saying. The point is, it's a struggle. It's a struggle that we all go through. But it's one that we can overcome. And the true believer will overcome it. Question is how? Well, he'll get to that in chapter 8. We're in chapter 7. Paul is presenting the problem. When we get to chapter 8, we'll see that the Holy Spirit and his ministry within us is what provides the solution, the way in which we can overcome this struggle. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, yes, you will still sin from time to time. But that is never something that a believer should ever be comfortable with or become complacent about. A believer hates the struggle with sin, hates the fact that we still sin, that we put ourselves under its authority from time to time and give into it. That's not why Christ died for us, not why he redeemed us, made us alive. He made us alive so that we will serve him in newness of life and continue the battle that we endure to overcome the sin that still fights for control within us.